walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my When I started this round of episodes, I looked at my pilgrimage bookshelves and paid close attention to the dustiest tomes, the ones that had lived longest on those shelves. Those are books I've had for nearly two decades now, books that shaped my earliest imagining of my first walk. I reached out to a handful of authors from that era, hoping vainly that I might get a response. Those pilgrim readers coming into the Camino today might be surprised to know that there was once a dearth of English-language materials available. I came to this later than many others, but even in 2001-2002, the options were thin enough that I ended up reading nearly every text I could grab more than once, interrogating it for insights that might prepare me for the road ahead. Some prominent books had been published around that time, William Melkser's translation of The Pilgrim's Guide to Santiago was published in 1993, followed by Davidson Dunn and Coffey's translation of St. James's Miracles in 1996. Jack Hitt's Off the Road appeared in 94, with Lee Hoynecke's El Camino coming two years later. Shirley MacLaine's The Camino and Gitlitz and Davidson's Essential Cultural Handbook hit the market in 2000. This is a terribly incomplete survey, but it's a snapshot of a good chunk of my first shelf of Camino books. One other book, though, stood out for its timing. It didn't precede those other publications by a few years, not even a decade. It was released in 1974. I'm talking about Edwin Mullen's The Pilgrimage to Santiago, a seminal Camino work if ever there was one, perhaps beaten to the punch only by Walter Starkey's The Road to Santiago. I'm too late, I'm afraid, to catch Starkey, but I was thrilled when Mr. Mullins replied to my note. Writing for the Daily Telegraph as an art critic in the late 1960s, Mullins stumbled into the Camino de Santiago and, like many of us, was hooked instantly. Soon after, he produced a series on it for the BBC. It's easy to imagine the influence he had on English-speaking pilgrims, particularly among many of the generation that would shape the UK's confraternity of St. James, which in turn helped make the Camino accessible to many of us. While Mullins would have to experience the Camino primarily by car, sometimes by foot, though he beat the yellow arrows to the route, the stories he tells feel shockingly familiar. His artistic eye, in particular, is invaluable in helping to call out some of the more notable and spectacular elements visible along the route. More than Spain, though, Edwin Mullins' affection for the pilgrim roads through France shines through in his work, both in that original book and in his more recent return to the Camino in The Four Roads to Heaven, France and the Santiago Pilgrimage. And this is one of the things that makes his writing stand out, even this many years removed. While most of the early English-language pilgrimage works centered on the Camino Francais, Mullins always had an eye on the French chemin. In this episode, I speak with Mr. Mullins about a lifetime spent engaged with the Camino de Santiago. We focus in detail on those four French pilgrimage arteries, paying special attention to the architecture along the way. And given his particular affection for Vézelay, I follow Mullins with John Newman, a pilgrim from New Zealand who recently walked the Vézelay route for some on-the-ground experiences. He's one of the most influential voices in the English-speaking world of the Camino, Edwin Mullins, plus practical advice from John Newman. Hope you enjoy. 
Edwin Mullins is the author of many works of art history and criticism, most notably for our purposes, two works on the Camino de Santiago. First, The Pilgrimage to Santiago, and second, The Four Roads to Heaven, France, and the Santiago Pilgrimage. And as I said, Mr. Mullins, it's an honor to speak with you. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure for me. You were one of the first, or at least one of the most prominent voices in the English-speaking world to draw attention back to the pilgrimage to Santiago as its modern resurgence began in earnest. How did you first learn about it, and what drew you to it? Really by chance. It, it, it sounds I shouldn't be saying it that way, but it's true. <laughs> I, I'm basically a historian, but mm -hmm. I've spent my working life as a journalist and a filmmaker and an author. And at the time, that is to say in the late 1960s, I was working on a feature for a London newspaper, The Daily Telegraph, which I was, which I was working with as an art correspondent. And I was writing some story which I'd completely forgotten about, but it was taking me to southwest France. And I remember sitting in my hotel room in this little town and flipping through the local guidebook, which was one of those lovely Michelin green guides. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly saw that the town I was in was on what was called a Chemin de Saint-Jacques. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard of it at all. And I thought, that's interesting. And I read a bit about it, and I thought, what a marvellous story this is. Mm. When I get back to England, I must look it up, which I did. And I went to various libraries on my return and found that there were a few books on it. There was a particularly good book by a man called Walter Starkey, who was former director of the British Museum, as far as I remember. And he wrote a, an extremely interesting historical study of the whole history of the St. James legend and the pilgrimage generally. And that gave me a very, very good background to the whole history and the whole mythology of St. James. And at that point, I thought, well, this is so interesting, but we need to see what it's like on the ground, because what emerged from my reading was that there was so much of the pilgrimage route took in some of the most interesting places artistically in Western Europe, places that interested me as an art historian. So I then thought, well, I must get on and do something about this. <laughs> and fortunately, I was on good terms with my editor of the Daily Telegraph, and he said, well, we'll pay for your trip if you'll write us some travel articles on the way. So I thought, that's fine, that's good. And then he said, I'll provide you with a good photographer. So he then introduced me to one of the leading photojournalists in England called Adam Wolfitt, who has remained to this day one of my closest friends. In fact, I spoke to him this morning. Hmm. And he would accompany me on the first trip we took, or one of the first trips, because I did it several times. And then beyond that, my publisher thought it was a good idea too, and so that was the second feather in my cap, if you like. But I was also doing a lot of television at the time. And my biggest stroke of good luck was that the controller of the arts channel on BBC television was a man called Scott. And he said to me, oh, yes, Santiago, he said, I had my honeymoon there, he said. <laughs> um, I've always wanted to make a film about it. Would you like to make one? <laughs> so I said, yes, thank you very much. So with three feathers in my cap, I was able to set off with an extremely good photographer and all expenses paid. So that was, that was a, a, a very healthy beginning to my pilgrimage, if you like. And then I did it, first of all, with my first wife and later with a second time with the photographer. 
and we set off to explore it. And, well, that's, that's how it all began, really. When you say that you set off to explore it, was that in a car at the time, or, or how were you approaching that? Uh, both. The first time I did it, uh, I took a car. In fact, the Telegraph provided me with a car, so that was even better. We drove, I realized that a lot of the French roads were the modern-day motorways, and so mm-hmm. there wasn't any point trying to walk them, at least not the Paris road. And what I did was to park the car the first time in the, roughly speaking, in the Basque country, and then I walked with my wife through the Basque country and up over the Pyrenees mm-hmm. into Navarre and then took a train back. And then later on, I did another spell of walking in Navarre and Castile. So I did a bit of both, I suppose. And the second time was when I went with Adam Wolfit. We mostly did it by car because he was photographing everything all the time. Mm -hmm. So most of my walking was just walking around in circles while he took ages to take pictures. (laughs) And then the television came later. That was about a year later. I went with a whole film crew. Mm-hmm. And that was huge fun, because by that time I knew I'd seen all the great monasteries and cathedrals and churches. And of course, things that interested me as much as the works of art were things like the old bridges mm-hmm. and the fortifications. All of the medieval, I, I love medieval art uh, and the Middle Ages generally fascinate me. And partly the way that the towns and villages along the Pilgrim route were, as it were, created by the huge popularity of the pilgrimage. So there were new bridges made because, as you know, the pilgrim quarters were usually outside the city walls Mm -hmm. or the town walls so that pilgrims could come and go at any time of the day and night. And to see this architecture, the way whole towns and villages were created for and by pilgrims in, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century was an extraordinarily exciting experience for me. And when I did it the first time, of course, there were very few pilgrims in the 60s. And mostly I did it on my own, either with my wife or with a photographer. And it was often a question of uh, going into the local cafe and saying, excuse me, um, where is the old road? And they'd say, oh, it's not here. This is the new road. And then they'd send a little boy to show me. And then in the woods, there would be this old, probably Roman road tucked away in the woods with wonderful old paving stones and that would be the road that now of course is walked on by two million people every minute (laughs) but at that time it was almost unknown that was enormously exciting while there weren't many people walking you were still encountering a collective memory that existed of the old road and the pilgrimage as you spoke with people along the way I didn't speak to a great number of people because there weren't that number. Mm. I did a few. I remember meeting somebody at, I stopped at, at Roncevaux for mm-hmm. a, overnight once, looking into the whole Charlemagne myth. And there was a guy there who, who told me he was doing it because he'd been recently widowed. And he felt that he just wanted to do something which would lead him to be part of a group of people who who are also looking for the light, if you like, or for some form of recompense or comfort, I suppose is the word. And he just felt comforted by being in company with people who were on a a similar kind of journey. And I understood that. That Mm. seemed to make sense to me. And you were walking then in the tail end of the Franco years? Absolutely. Well, I was when I was filming, it was still... uh, I mean, Franco's soldiers were all over the place. Oh, yes. Not that that was a particular problem. I mean, Spain was still the Spain. And uh, it was certainly before 
the Spanish tourist industry got really involved in using the Santiago pilgrimage as a kind of flagship, which has now become, of course, as you know. So it felt, it felt different. Um, I haven't been back for a long time now. I don't even know what it would be like now to try and do it, although there are plenty of people I meet all the time who tell me that they've just done it or they're about to do it, and they describe <laughs> a very different world from the one I knew. One more question about back when you were encountering the pilgrimage for the first time. Did you run into people who, even that early on, in terms of the pilgrimage's resurgence, were oriented towards providing hospitality or care to pilgrims? Was there any sort of support in place along the way? Not specifically for pilgrims. I mean, it was before places like Rabanal got organized specifically for pilgrims. There were still, of course, the little hotels and inns mm-hmm. along the way, but they weren't specifically for, for pilgrims. They were really for anybody. So, no, I suppose the answer is no. That I couldn't think of anything that was provided. As if there, I don't think there were enough of them at the time, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, much of the early attention of the Camino's resurgence has centered on Spain, and that makes a lot of sense. Even in your first book, you were always splitting attention between Spain and France. You just mentioned that it was really France that drew you into this in the first place. But you've continued to return to France in the years since then, and and your second book, which came out many years after the first, focuses specifically on the Chemin in France. So what is it about the pilgrim roads through France that have captured your interest over the years? Well, I love France to start with, and I speak French, and I've lived in France, and although I love Spain too, I don't live as close to Spain as I do to France, but also I was fascinated by the fact that you know all the publicity goes on, on the Camino, mm-hmm. but actually the idea of there being a whole network of traditional roads running right across France and therefore drawing in people from all over Europe to gradually focus on the Pyrenees absolutely fascinates me. It's like following a giant spider's web. And I wanted to see as much of those as I could and explore the places along the way that interested me, which is what I set out to do. And a lot of the time between those two books that you talk about, because I was working as either a filmmaker or a journalist, I would always make sure that if I was anywhere near one of those roads, I would take a bit of time off to go and have a look and see some. So it was like a big jigsaw puzzle I gradually put together so that in the end, I suppose I've seen all those four roads, but not in one piece, in many, many pieces. And that was really what made me want to write the second book, because I felt that although there are individual guidebooks about, there are now millions of them, of course, there had been almost too much attention on Spain and too little on France, which was where it all came from, and particularly because the whole pilgrimage movement really was French mm. in origin, particularly the, the Benedictines, as you know. And that's really why I got more and more interested in France, because I realized that without the Benedictine Church, and particularly the Monastery of Cluny, whom I then wrote another book about, which is, I think, one of the books I've most enjoyed writing in my life, as a history of the Monastery of Cluny, who were the great patrons of the pilgrimage. And that added another dimension to my interest in France, was to write the whole history of this great monastery, which is the most powerful spiritual and financial force in Christendom at that time. 
you know, created popes. They were friends of emperors and monarchs. They were all aristocrats themselves and helped to finance the leaguered Spanish monarchs in northern Spain in the whole campaign against Islam. And of course, that introduced the other huge area, which interests me as, uh, as a historian, that the politics of the pilgrimage is really as important as anything else. The fact that it was all part of the Christian revival, an attempt to bring Spain back into the Christian fold. And the pilgrimage was one of the primary vehicles for achieving that through the military help given to the Spanish rulers, but also by the church building roads, bridges, abbeys all along the way to make the pilgrimage possible. So all that really, it, it just was part of the fact that so many different threads came together in, in my growing interest in the whole idea of the pilgrimage. Could you talk in a little more detail for people who are unfamiliar with the role of Clooney in the explosion of the pilgrimage? What exactly did Clooney do to make the Camino de Santiago so significant? Well, Clooney was the richest, most powerful monastery in France, and the Cluniac order was a branch of the Benedictines. And it, it just so happened, because Cluny was where it was, which is right in the middle of Burgundy, I think it became, it's always difficult to try and simplify this, it became the focus, really, of enormous amount of effort made by both the papacy and the French royalty and the aristocrats. It became a very useful focus for pouring both money and spiritual influence into Spain. I mean, Cluny itself became the mother house of over a hundred different monasteries throughout Europe. So that way of empire building, if you like, spiritual empire building, was really one of the ways in which they became the chief patrons of the pilgrimage route. Hmm. And it's a fascinating story. Cluny altogether is one of the most interesting subjects that I've ever gone into. And, of course, their abbots were probably the most powerful religious people, certainly more important than the popes at that time. And, unfortunately, the whole place got destroyed in the... Well, virtually all of it got destroyed in the French Revolution. There's so a little bit of it left, which is still nice, but, you know, it was the largest church in, in the world till the 18th century. Hmm. So that's... Well, that's gloomy, but that's... It's another story. It's, <laughs> it's an integral part of the whole story. And as a consequence of the work of Clooney, there are these different pilgrim roads to Santiago that move through France. And you highlight the four major ones in your recent book, The Four Roads to Heaven. For those unfamiliar with these routes, for those whom the Camino de Santiago is equated solely with the Camino Frances in Spain, could you offer an overview of what is distinct or, or special about each of those four branches? Well, for a start, of course, the four roads were first mentioned in what we now call the Pilgrim's Guide, which was part of a 12th century manuscript called Codex Calixtinus. And that is the origin of the whole idea that there were these four roads. And the Pilgrim's Guide, which I used very largely when I was writing my book on, on them, goes in considerable detail with all, of all these four, four different roads and what to expect to see, and what to eat. <laughs> it's an extremely interesting document. What rivers to avoid because there are very dishonest boatmen there, where you'll be fleeced if you go to that hotel, don't stay there. It, it really is the first, the world's first tourist guide. 
and I followed it as though it was my guide when I did my book on the four roads. And they're all very distinctive, of course, some of them more interesting than others. The first one I did was the Paris route, the main Paris route, which is the first one, I suppose, which starts with the Tour Saint-Jacques in Paris is, is, as it were, symbolically the beginning of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's point zero, point zero, and then you cross over the river and then it goes on down, right down to, to, to the Pyrenees. That's a marvellous route and it's particularly appealing when it goes, because it goes down to the Loire and travels along the Loire, which is a lovely stretch of the river to Tours. And Tours, of course, was one of the chief churches of the whole pilgrimage route, which is now virtually destroyed, but little bits and pieces are there. And the other thing about that route, of course, is that it, it takes in Orléans, Orléans, and quite a lot of pilgrims would have taken a short diversion further east to go to Saint-Benoît, which is along the river to the east, because that is the place where the relics of St. Benedict were brought from Monte Cassino in Italy after it was sacked. And St. Benoit, which means St. Benedict, is the name of the town. And the Benedictine order, being, as it were, the patron saint of the pilgrimage, drew a lot of pilgrims to revere at this beautiful church, which I think is illustrated in my book, as far as I remember. But so that was a diversion which was very appealing. And I've done it many times. It's a lovely stretch of the river. And so that's the Paris route. And then, of course, the Vézelay one. Well, I love Vézelay. It's one of my favorite places in France, I adore it. That's another lovely road, because right through the middle of Burgundy, takes in quite close to Cluny, not actually to Cluny itself, and then on down to join up with the others. Well, the one place where three roads join in the Basque country, a place strangely called Gibraltar. I never actually quite remember why it's called Gibraltar. <laughs> and then the third route, of course, is Le Puy, which I think is one of the most appealing roads because that takes you right over the mountains of the Massif Central. It's a wonderful route for walking. There's much more of that is old paths rather than roads, whereas the others tend to be more tarmac and takes in wonderful places like Cork, which is, again, it's one of my favorite places. And then the last one from Arles. Again, Arles is one of my favorite cities. I love it. And the, the great church of Saint-Trophime. And that takes you across the northern Camargue. And one of the appealing things about that route is that it takes in, and in a way this is what ties up so many of the other routes, it takes in the great legend of the Three Marys at Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer, which was where supposedly Mary Magdalene and two other Marys, landed after the crucifixion by this raft. I mean, the whole thing is probably nonsense, but it's the great myth of <laughs> the arrival of, of the Magdalene. And that ties up with Vézelay because the relics of the Magdalene when she died were literally stolen by the monks of Vézelay and taken to Vézelay. And, and, and they're still there. And it was because of the fame of these relics that Vézelay became enormously important and, and extremely rich because monasteries made their money out of the importance of the relics they held. Without sounding cynical, I'm afraid just the way it was that people gave money, rich people gave money to monasteries in return, as it were, from the blessing of whatever the saints whose relics they held. It sounds like the story of Conk as well. Well, that was stolen too. As you probably know, the relics there were stolen from another forestry. Perhaps you didn't, but you now do. <laughs> <laughs>
and the trésor there, which again made Cork rich. It came from a nearby monastery where they were lifted when the monks were asleep after a good lunch. <laughs> I was fascinated to read your description of the five churches linking the four ah. roads in France and Santiago itself. That was new to me and really quite revealing. So could you talk more about that? What, what are those churches? What elements do they share? And, and what do they reveal about how pilgrimage influenced architectural design? Well, there are various theories about this. The five churches are obviously Santiago itself. The cathedral is the central one. But there is also one, or was historically, one church on each of the four French roads, which were supposed to be linked architecturally and therefore functionally with the Santiago Cathedral. And that was Saint Martin de Tours, which only exists fragmentally, Limoges on the Vézelay route, which doesn't exist at all anymore. Conques on the third route, which of course does exist, although it's changed a bit. And the fourth one is Toulouse, which again does survive, Saint-Sarnin and de Toulouse. And what they had in common was the shape of the building. They were constructed specifically for pilgrims to use in large quantities, because the whole thing about the pilgrim movement generally not just Santiago, in the age of pilgrimage, huge numbers would descend on an important pilgrimage site, and that required a different kind of church. In this case, one with a very wide nave so that large numbers of people could see what was going on at the altar and listen to the priest and all that, but also have a very broad semicircular ambulatory round behind the altar so that people could circulate and admire whatever the relics of that particular church was placed on the altar. And then they could deliver their prayers and so on. So they were churches that were specifically designed for that purpose. And the argument is, and it's been disputed, I think it was Kingsley Porter, the American, who suggested that it was all inspired by Santiago, a cathedral. But it's also been argued, I think, by Kenneth Conant, who's also an American scholar, a very distinguished American scholar, who said actually the founding church of the pilgrim movement was Saint-Martin-de-Tours, which doesn't exist anymore, and that seems to be more likely, that Tours was, I think, such an important city at that time. And today, if you go there, you know, you have to walk down the main street past cafes to say, well, this, to remember that this actually was the nave at one time. And then the wings of where they now sell fruit and vegetables. And there's a tower still there, but very little of it are read. But whatever came first, they will all of them have this same architectural quality created for the same functional reason. Each of the pilgrim roads through France is, of course, oriented towards Santiago. But then they also pass through individual sites of great sacred yes. significance of their own. And I mapped out three of them that I was interested in, Vézelay, Le Puy-en-Velay, and Toulouse. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on those, but I don't want to limit you. If you have personal favorites along these four roads that are sacred destinations in their own right, what's special to you about them, and what is reflected in the architecture of those places? I mean, I have so many favorites, and there's so many churches that I, I love. <laughs> on those four roads. I suppose if I have to pick one, it would have to be Vézelay. And I think, the thing about Vézelay, its position is glorious. Up on the hill, sloping down on all sides through the woods. It is the most marvellous position to be in. 
Architecturally, it has features that are incomparable. It has this marvelous, beautiful tympanum in the narthex, the picture of Christ extending his hand. It's, it's the most marvelous piece of sculpture. And what it does is actually visualize the supposed command of Christ to his disciples to go and spread the gospel throughout the world. And the way that's done sculpturally is by visual rays of light going out from his fingers towards the figures of his apostles. And it is the most beautiful piece of sculpture, magnificent. Also, the actual capitals above the carvings in the church are all done by one of the great, one of the very few medieval sculptors whose, whose name we know. And he's a, a man I've written a great deal about, and he's absolutely fascinating. And his name is Gilbertus, or Gilles and he was responsible mainly for the great cathedral in Autun, which is a little further away in, in Burgundy. And he, again, is somebody who, if you want one of the great medieval artists, Gilles Libertus is, is certainly one of them. And we only know his name because one of the big panels in Autun actually says, Gilles Libertus, hic fake it. And that's his name. And we realize from that, that he was responsible probably for the whole church. But he also took time off, we know, to spend a few years at Vézelay and did the capitals there. And they are absolutely magnificent. They're all about ordinary life, which is so marvelous. They're not just spiritual images. They're little details of people playing games, laughing, planting trees. They're full of life. They're a little a sort of study of natural history and human nature all in one. They're, they're marvelous. So that's Vézelay, but there are other reasons why I like Vézelay. If you go around the back, down the side, go through the woods, and you come to a little platform, which is where St. Bernard of Clairvaux actually preached the Second Crusade, and there's a cross market. And you stand there, you can imagine what it would have been like for the most important churchman of his day. Stand there, facing the King of France, and an enormous number of his dukes and and actually, as it were, telling them all to fork out for this crusade and join up. And they all did. It's one of the historic moments of the crusade movement, this moment when St. Bernard himself tells people, you know, get off your arse and do something about it. <laughs> so that's another reason why I like Vesely. And there's a little chapel there, which is where he's supposed to have prayed before delivering this sermon. It's a very touching place, but it has so much to offer. So... That's why Vézelay for me. How does architecture amplify or inspire faith? Faith? Yeah, faith, belief. You have this wealth of expertise. You have studied sacred architecture for so many decades. And clearly it exists to serve multiple purposes, but one of them is to uplift, to inspire, to reinforce the belief that people bring with them to those settings. So when it's done well, how can architecture accomplish those goals? It's almost impossible to answer that accurately because there is no accurate answer. I mean, as you say, certainly Gothic architecture in particular follows the spiritual desire to lift your hearts and your eyes up towards heaven. That That's quite clearly why got developed. But the other thing, of course, is that for all the period we're talking about, we're dealing with a 99% illiterate population. And the only way they could be told about religion, about faith, about 
sins about everything to do with religion was either through preaching from within the church by the curate or else by visual stories sculpted and painted all around the church, which is where, of course, the great carvings, the narthex carvings of places like Desolek Kant. So architecturally performed this enormously important importance by offering a setting whereby the Christian faith could be proposed and uh, preached. And to some extent, the, the shape of the building reflects that. I don't personally find it easy to go much beyond that, but mm -hmm. those are two obvious ways in which the church expressed the Christian faith. We talked about how long the Camino de Santiago has been a presence in your life. Wow, for, for five decades, really. Can you pin down what the Way of St. James has meant to your life? I'm not your classic pilgrim at all. My interests have been much more general in the artistic and historic. I think probably the whole study of the Santiago movement from all points of view, artistic, geographical, has probably been one of the most uplifting experiences in my life. There are many things I've loved you know, in, in all sorts of parts of the world, you know, from Egypt to Iran to Russia to everywhere I've traveled. But I think there's something about the way the Santiago pilgrimage brought together so many different elements of things that interest me, including, of course, walking. Mm -hmm. I love walking. And to have a chance to think about and write about a story which involves walking through some of the most beautiful places in the world, that's another enormously enriching experience for me, which, generally speaking, you know, most artistic things don't involve much walking. So you get out of the car and have a look at it, and that's it. But something about the pilgrimage being the fact that it's on the move all the time, that it's out in the open, you've got to explore it. I think that element has given me something that nothing else has ever given me, quite like that. How has it felt to see the pilgrimage return to prominence and change so profoundly over the course of your life? And not only to see the change, but also to have played a part in that change. Well, it's, it's a flattering thought. I, I just never thought of myself <laughs> as playing a part in it at all. But <laughs> I, I'm glad to have written books that people have enjoyed reading, and that's certainly true. I'm obviously very pleased that the effect of popularizing or helping to popularize it has been that it has become something that now enormous number of people enjoy doing. And the fact that it has become, to some extent, a tourist industry has its plus side as well as its downside. I would find it personally difficult to enjoy it today if I had never done it before by having to join huge parties of people being given a lecture tour and with a guidebook in my left hand saying that, you know, the third stone on the left is where you turn right, and that's where you change your baby's diapers, which is virtually what you get all the time now. <laughs> you can't move without being told the significance of everything. I loved my time of being able to explore it by trying to find out things for myself and talking to people in cafes and finding out stretches of old roads in the woods. Those are things that I wouldn't be able to do today. But, you know, that's just luck. I happened to get there early. Well, this has been a, a real pleasure to hear some of your stories and, and some of your insights. And I'm really grateful to have had the chance to speak with you. Well, it's very nice to talk to you. And good luck with your podcast. I hope it all goes well.
John Newman is a pilgrim from Auckland, New Zealand, and he's been doing a lot of walking over these last five years. He joins me now to talk specifically about the Vesale route. Thanks for speaking with me, John. No worries. Nice to be able to uh, contribute. What is your pilgrimage background? What drew you to it in the first place, and what keeps drawing you back? Well, that's supposed to be the easiest question, and it's actually quite hard. <laughs> I, a friend of mine with his wife and kids, the Francaise route, about maybe 15 years ago, and they loved it, but their marriage broke up immediately thereafter. And I thought, well, that kind of got a few rats out of the rat hole, didn't it? <laughs> it sounds trite. I watched the way, and it did grab me. I know I'm not the only person to have said that, and yeah, it grabbed me. The background to this is that I've always been very driven, very ambitious. I've worked extremely hard. The times that I've had holidays have been relatively short holidays, mostly. And then about eight years ago, I got extremely sick uh, with kidney failure. And it took me a while to get back to work. And I never completely got back to work. And I struggled with work. So four, five years ago, 2015, I retired. And my dream of retiring was to be able to walk 8 or 10 k's in the morning and then to go to bed for the rest of the day. <laughs> I started training and I thought, this is just such good fun. Even if you go to bed in the afternoon, it's such good fun. So with my wife, Margie, we did the uh, Francais route mm -hmm. and just loved it. Just loved it. So the next year we did the Vardu Pui from the Pui to Roncevaux and we loved that as well. But then last year on a hiking trip in New Zealand, Maggie got a very bad leg and I decided to do this on my own. And actually, I kind of before that, I'd already decided, I think I'd like to do something on my own. That was where the idea started. Why Vesalay? Yeah, why Vesalay? I wanted to do a long walk. The other two, when we finished, I really felt, wow, I'd like to keep going. I'd like to keep going. So I thought this time I'll do a long route on my own at my own pace and just keep going, just to, to really get into it and feel that I've kind of worked it out of my system, maybe, mm -hmm. or at least completed something within myself, maybe. I thought it was going to take about three months. It was a wee bit less than that, but I thought a three-month Camino would actually be very good. That's what I was looking forward to, just day after day after day. Wow. That's a huge challenge. Well, it, it is. I'm not physically strong. And there was a bit of anxiety associated with it, but one of the reasons to do Vesalay is it's relatively gentle at the beginning. So I thought I can get my fitness up before I do the Norte and the Primitivo, which is exactly what happened. What was Vesalay like as a starting point for pilgrimage? People know, of course, Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. Some people will be familiar with Le puy en velay What about Vesalay? It's a tiny village. It's a tiny village. <laughs> quite difficult to get to. Uh, the train doesn't go to Vesalay, it goes to Termizel, and then you have to get a taxi. You have to ring a taxi in French. I think the site's quiet. We stayed at a little hotel there, a two-star hotel, I think, two or three, which was just beautiful and really nice people. The town itself is, the cathedral dedicated to Mary Magdalene is up on the hill, and it is a huge cathedral. How a little village like that gets a huge cathedral, you just have to wonder... <laughs> The resources that went into that, it is a famous town in its own right, nothing to do with uh, Camino de Santiago because of the relics of Mary Magdalene, but also that's where the first crusade was called and that's where the second or third crusade started. So in terms of medieval Western Christianity, it was a big deal. 
you feel that in the town. It, it feels like quite a religious place. We had a look at the church the night we arrived, and then the next morning we went up. They were doing a thing called Lords, which is not a service that I know. I'm Church of England, Episcopalian, and it's a purely singing service. So we sat there through this, and then it finished. And when we finished, uh, one of the nuns said, "Oh, would you like the blessing?" So she got the priest, and we got our blessing. But it was a, it was just a lovely, lovely way to start. Very private. It wasn't like you felt you were in something for pilgrims. We were a party to their private service. There were no other lay people there at all. It was beautiful. And then you hit the road, and I've gone through your blog. I've looked at all your pictures. It seems like the walk is pretty gentle. You mentioned that as a, one of the perks. But how would you characterize the nature of the walk along this route overall? It's way easier than the La Puy route, hmm. physically. It's really just a long walk through rural France with villages and small towns. Rural France is dying, and you participate in that. You go past villages which are shuttered up, hotels which are closed, restaurants that are closed, bars that are closed. So services are, um, you grab what you can. If, if you go past a place which is open, you, you shop there or you eat there or you drink there or whatever. It requires a bit of thought and a bit of organisation, I think. On the Le Puy route, it seems like while it has some of those challenges, it's clear there's an economy that's developed surrounding the pilgrimage. Is that not the case on the Vézelay route? No. There are people and places dedicated to the Chemin. The first place we stayed in, they'd had a, an albergue in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, and they decided that was too busy for them, so they'd come up here. But we were the only people there, and a lot of the places we were at, we were either the only people there or one of two couples. It's more of a subsistence economy or people who've moved there for a way of life. You're mostly staying with a very few people every night, and there's not much of an economy around the way at all. Having said that, some of the older people, and this was one of the best things about it, was if I take like an Osara, which was uh, my last night on the Desolet route before I headed off to the coast, we stayed with a guy in his 70s. This is a little village. He has a private chambre d'hôte, and there was only Mark and I there. He wouldn't have anybody for, say, the next three days. But that was his livelihood. He cooked for us. It was so giving, so giving, and he just wanted to talk about his town and being a Basque and what the Basque life was all about. And I don't think you get that so much on the bigger routes. There was another one, La Petite Prune, where we stayed with a couple. They live in the south of France, but they come up during the summertime where they've got a country house, and it's the way they fund their country house is to have pilgrims in. And again, we were the only two people, Joe and I, we were the only two people there. So it's not much of an economy as such. It's more sort of a subsistence, mm -hmm. which is actually very pleasant for me. <laughs> it seems like you ate very well, at least when you had access to food. <laughs> what are some of the highlights to you of the French cuisine along the way through these regions? Oh, my gosh. The, the highlight was stopping at a little village for lunch. where I ended up having three courses and half a bottle of wine and then walking 10Ks in the afternoon after that not walking, floating along. <laughs> and that was really haute cuisine. That was, that was a beautiful meal. But it was just, oh, if I think of things like the Chatelet, you had nettle soup, and she just got the nettles from the garden. I don't know if you have nettle soup where you're from, but we would never have that here. We would never do that here. <laughs> and, um, of course, the Perigord salad, which I just love. 
huge salads, huge salads with duck hearts and gizzards. <laughs> Again, we don't eat that kind of stuff here. Sometimes we didn't even know exactly what it is. You, you just sit down and you're fed and there are vegetables you haven't had before. I think the highlight was always the home-cooked food. And the surprise is you don't know what you're going to get. Oh, in Osram, he had a thing called Sauce of Espelette, which was where I was going to go to in a couple of days. And I hadn't realised how famous the peppers of Espelette are, but it was a, a special Espelette sauce, which was his big thing. And I think we just had that with some veal or something. Nice little highlights. <laughs> oh, and of course the homemade conserves, La Petite Prunia. For breakfast, there was just this array of homemade jams and just about everything you can imagine. Rhubarb and pears and gooseberries. And it's a pity that I don't like bread and jam, but there you go. <laughs> I was going to say, it seemed like you were quite put off by the breakfast in your blog, but I have been struck as well in France by the jams, by the preserves, and how varied and tasty they are. They are, they are beautiful. It's just not good food. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm fussy. <laughs> I do have to look after my body a bit, and I just don't think bread and jam is very generous to myself. That's a fair point. We've talked about the countryside, the rural nature of the route, but I'm sure you did pass through some towns, maybe some small cities. What are a couple of places that stand out in that regard along this route that pilgrims might not be familiar with? To be honest, the villages were much more interesting than the town. And the little towns, you know, like Ajitmo, Gajiles. Gajiles was interesting. It's where the northern and southern variants meet. And I thought we'd meet up a whole lot of pilgrims coming from the northern route. We didn't see any other pilgrims there at all. Now it kind of looks like a hippie village. It's kind of artisans and things like that. But it's got a long artistic heritage going back many years. Mostly the bigger towns I was underwhelmed by. Maybe it was because everything was always shut. Having said that, Nevers is quite a big town. And we stayed at the old abbey there where St. Bernadette is preserved in glass. That was a nice town. That was a nice town. I could have stayed there. But mostly it was the smaller villages that I would have happily stayed in. Rural France is struggling. It really is. I suppose rural Spain is as well. And the, the Camino is what's kind of kept it going. But a lot of the cities are quite run down. A lot of the towns are quite run down. And then people have migrated to the suburbs. And to me, they seem rather soulless. That's a bit of a sad thing to say. I guess people there have to deal with what they have to deal with. You are a relatively unusual pilgrim in the sense that you've walked both the Le Puy and Vézelay routes. I think a lot of people, if they do break into France, it's the Le Puy route. Yeah. So if you were trying to advise someone... They were trying to decide between these two options. What advice would you give them? I think you've been prepared for the Puyri. It's got much better services. People say you have to speak some French on the Le Puy route, and I think that's true. But you really have to speak French on the Vesalay route. I just, if it was physically possible to organize all your accommodations and everything without speaking French, it still wouldn't be, I don't think it would be very enjoyable. You have to go somewhere and get the key to the Palberg. I suppose there's always someone around who speaks a bit of English, but I think it would be very difficult if he didn't speak a bit of French. Be prepared for probably more tarmac walking on the Vézelay route. Be prepared to be creative about food and drink, really. What's the argument for doing the Vézelay route? What's special about it? That's a really good question. I guess it depends on where you're at. I walked most of it on my own, even when I was uh, in company, even the bits I did with Joe, I did most of it on my own. 
And if you meet another pilgrim, which I did probably every other day, you talk with someone for five minutes, you'd maybe walk a couple of k's with them, and then you got the rest of the time on your own. And I very much enjoyed that. Strangely, when I got to the Primitivo, I very much enjoyed walking with other people. So there you go. <laughs> but maybe what Vesely offers is solitude and hospitality. Is that fair? Yeah. It's old-fashioned comes to mind. Old school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't, haven't walked the Frances for four years. It's probably more cosmopolitan now than when we walked it. But this is very rural France. A lot of it quite poor. The people on it are mostly French, Germans, and people from the Lowlands, Belgium and Holland. Very few Anglos, very few opportunities to speak English, which is either good or bad, depending on which way you look at it. Although, having said that, the Dutch all speak good English, and most of the Germans speak good English too. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, it's not unusual for pilgrims to seek out churches, to find them as ideal places for prayer, for peace, for reflection... But in your blog, I was struck by how commonly you engaged in song in churches along the way, and it seemed like you sought that out. Could you talk about that? Yeah, it's interesting that you picked up on that. It's true, and I was a chorister when I was at school, and my father always sang in the cathedral. So it's kind of in our bones a bit. But also in working with Māori in New Zealand, that's our indigenous people, and studying the language and culture, song is a very big part of their daily practice. You start every day with a prayer or an incantation or, and then a song. So often when I went into a church, it's an opportunity nobody else is about usually. France is very secular. Virtually no one goes to church. So the churches that are open are usually empty and it's an opportunity to to say what you have to say on my own, without witnesses usually. And then uh, I'd sing almost always a Māori karakia, which is a kind of a prayer or a song. But what I did find was that people would come and listen, so that was good too. That's great. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for talking with me about Vézelay. There aren't too many people with this experience. Well, I hope there are more. I mean, I, I don't wish to make it busy. But I mean, if the numbers went up two, three or four times, it still wouldn't be busy. It's very unknown amongst anglophones. Maybe it should be better known. It was lovely. It was, it was a, such a good experience. There are two passages from Edwin Mullins' The Pilgrimage to Santiago that really stand out to me that I'd like to share. The first comes as he stares down upon Santiago from Monte de Gozo. I'm sure many of us can imagine our own moment in that position. And he describes how, as he stood there, he tried to imagine something of the sense of elation. This is a quote now. A pilgrim would have felt at this moment in the Middle Ages. Impossible. Sadly so. A non-believer who is catching no more than a whiff, scented perhaps with a little sentimentality of that joy. Yet happy, radiantly happy, in a way that maybe no medieval pilgrim could have known, because I had not only the city of St. James lying before me, but the whole perspective of history, of its history, of the follies and lies and achievements, amazing bravery and persistence, which were woven together into the intricate pattern of this story, to which I had devoted a slice of my life. Why had I done so? I did not in all honesty know. 
except I was glad I had. The second passage comes from the beginning of his book. While Mullins isn't entirely sure why he was drawn to the Camino, at the beginning of his book, he describes why medieval pilgrims might have been. Here's what he writes. Quote, in the medieval era, this faith in relics was the product of a universal lack of faith in contemporary life and of a consequent expectancy of destruction to come. This lack of confidence in today, with its accompanying vision of hell tomorrow, led to the search for an ideal only to be found in the imagined perfection of the past. The only spiritual nourishment which made an absurd and nasty world bearable was to be obtained from these vestiges, these dry springs which proved that divine favor had once been received and was now withdrawn. So the pilgrim journeyed in order to pay the prescribed respects out of duty, out of love, out of fear, or out of a drive towards self-improvement or superiority, but always as a means of averting the daily grind and of going on a journey. Travel became synonymous with an abdication into the past. And I wonder if maybe we are not so different from those medieval pilgrims after all. That's all for this episode. Special thanks to Edwin Mullins for joining me to speak about his life spent working on the Camino de Santiago. I heartily recommend his books, The Pilgrimage to Santiago and The Four Roads to Heaven, as well as his history of Cluny, all of which will add essential depth to your pilgrimage experience. Thanks as well to John Newman. You can find his blog at johnstravels.co.nz or nz. The Camino Podcast is available on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. You can always find trip notes, links to everything we talk about on DaveWoodson.com. And you can get in touch at CamilloPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon.